In earlier episodes, we've talked about how the GPT family of chatbots learn, and I suppose that's just typical of how neural nets generally learn. Typically, you have a set of training data and a set of validation data, and you train the model on the training data, and then you test the model on the validation data to see whether it gives you something approaching the right answers. And we've talked about this before. But there's an interesting debate going on now, since the community of users has grown to be quite large, about the relative merits of the fine-tuning approach and the input message, if I can call it that, approach. And I'd like to say a little bit about it because it reflects interesting factors of the architecture of the models that we can learn something from. Fine-tuning, if I can remind you, consists of preparing perhaps a very large number, two or three hundred sets of prompt and completion responses in pairs, and then uploading them to the model and asking OpenAI to retrain the model using your additional data. And that takes a while. It's certainly not instant. It can take a day or two before this has been done. And that's because it's intensive, computationally intensive. And it involves changing the weights that govern the behaviour of the neural net. And there I'm going to read something from OpenAI in a moment which confirms this. But that's, in other words, a little bit like changing your long-term memory. Like working over a period of time to obtain some new skill or knowledge. But there's another way to do it which I haven't used, but which is talked about lots, which is that you simply put the additional knowledge you want the model to have into a series of input prompts, which will then stay as part of your conversation until such time as the termination of that conversation. And we'll come back in a minute to what you might be able to do to retrieve earlier conversations in which that knowledge is embedded. The difference between the two, OpenAI say, is the difference between long and short-term memory. If you give the model some new information as a result of some input statements, then it will remember them during the course of the conversation that you're having, sometimes to an irritating extent. As I said in episodes 88 and 89, one of the problems that GPT-4 has is that it is so painfully consistent that it attempts to precy the entire conversation, no matter how long it is, at the beginning of every answer. You can, of course, tell it not to do this, as I did, but it tends to forget, or it certainly tends only to respond to your request that it not do it by preceding it even more dramatically reducing a conversation of several thousand words to a few dozen. Let me read you what OpenAI themselves say in their cookbook, which you can find on GitHub if you're interested. They say, although fine-tuning can feel like the more natural option, training on data is, after all, how GPT learned all of its other knowledge. We generally do not recommend it, as a way to teach the model knowledge. 
fine-tuning is better suited to teaching specialised tasks or styles and is less reliable for factual recall. End of quote. You'll remember that I trained a fine-tuned model to speak and think like Marcus Aurelius uh, in an earlier episode, and it still sits there. I don't use it very much, but it's an interesting example of how you're changing the style rather than the knowledge. Anyway, back to the quote. Here we go. As an analogy, model weights are like long-term memory. When you fine-tune a model, it's like studying for an exam a week away. When the exam arrives, the model may forget details or even misremember facts it never read. End of quote. In other words, the model may not remember things you've given it or it may invent things you didn't give it. And we've seen examples of that in earlier interactions, even with the professionally tuned major models, that they do misremember things sometimes. So back to the quote. Quote, in contrast, message inputs are like short-term memory. When you insert knowledge into a message, it's like taking an exam with open notes. With notes in hand, the model is more likely to arrive at correct answers. Close quote. Okay, I hear you say, but surely the point here is that if we have to give the model the knowledge before we can ask it the questions, we wouldn't really need to ask it the questions. The whole point about this model thing is that it knows things we don't know, not that it knows things we've just told it. Well, fair comment, but let's come back to that in a minute. There are some limitations. As OpenAI say, GPT 3.5 can only remember about five pages of a conversation and then it, it drops out, it can't cope with any more. And that's quite restrictive if you want to have an interaction as well. GPT 4 can deal with about 10 pages and GPT 432K can deal with up to 40 pages. Although, as we've seen, the problem with GPT-4 is that it drones on endlessly about everything that's ever happened in the history of the world, so to speak. So, says OpenAI, quote, continuing the analogy, you can think of the model like a student who could only look at a few pages of notes at a time, despite, potentially, having shelves of textbooks to draw on. Therefore, to build a system capable of drawing upon large quantities of text to answer questions, we recommend using a search-ask approach. And they talk about, particularly, a search-ask approach based upon embedding research. And we'll come back to that in the second part. Embeddings, let me remind you, are like vectors that point in different directions. You can take a sentence, which implicitly means a question or knowledge or uh, an answer or anything you like, a resource, and you can tokenize it by turning it out as a string of integers from a string of words. And then you can take those 
integers and you can embed them in ways that responds or reflects their relatedness to one another. And how you do that and the sophistication of, with which you do that will very much determine the effectiveness of your artificial intelligence. So, let's suppose, this is OpenAI's own example, that we want to train it to know some stuff that happened after the end of its training period. It, the data that it was trained on, remember, stops round about September 2021. And quite a lot's happened since then, if you think about it. So what we want to do is we want to tell it something that's happened since, perhaps quite a lot of stuff. So one of the ways to do that is to provide it with some text, perhaps a string of Wikipedia articles that it could look at, and break them up into chunks and get it to create the embeddings for those chunks. So to take a a rather artificial example, if you're just interested in the 2022 Winter Olympics skiing, downhill skiing, you might break the data up into chunks and then feed it through an embedding process that would generate in relation to any number of facts about the downhill skiing a series of vectors which would represent that skiing result in a numerical form. And I don't know how, I don't have any idea how many such results there would be. Let's suppose there were 1,024. Somebody then comes along and asks a question about downhill skiing. And you can embed the question. In other words, you can make the question into a vector by a process of first tokenizing it and then encoding it into a one-dimensional embedding. And when you have the one-dimensional embedding, you have a vector that, if you remember in an early episode, I was talking about having two arms, one of which points at the top of an oak tree and the other one of which points somewhere else. And the question you ask is, how closely are these arms pointing in the same direction? And the measure of that is the angle between them measured in three-dimensional space, or in the case of these embeddings, hundreds of dimensional spaces. I should hear, sorry, I've used dimension in two different senses there. Strictly speaking, a vector is a tensor of rank one in that it just has a string of digits and you only need to specify one position in order to specify which digit it is. So if you've got uh, a list that goes one, two, three, four, five, you can reference the third one by saying it's not in position three. That means that although we talk about vectors in that sense, how only having one dimension, we should really say they only have one rank or have rank one because they span as many dimensions as they have elements. I'm sorry about this confusion. It's partly my sloppy usage, but it's partly that that usage is abroad in the community and, we, and the two get used differently. I have a, a blog about tensors, if you're interested. So, we've got a vector, 
and it has a string of integers initially that are the tokens and then it's turned into a string of floating point numbers almost certainly which are the embeddings and that constitutes our question and it might be about who won the women's slalom or whatever it might be great slalom or the they're, they're different lengths i'm not a not an olympics winter olympics specialist and so you then say all right well this is my vector that represents my question let's go into the database let's go into all the information that we've been given in these chunks and let's compare each of those with the embedded question and see now think about my two arms pointing in two different directions see which of them is closest together see which of them has the smallest angle between them and there is a very simple vector process that does this it's called a dot product and it doesn't really matter whether you call it a cosine or a sine the advantage of the cosine measure is that the cosine gets closer to one and therefore to what's usually regarded as true as the, the vectors get closer and closer together and the angle between them gets smaller whereas sine gets closer and closer to zero and therefore to what we normally regard as false. And I think that's really the only reason why they've decided to use cosine similarity rather than sine similarity. So you have a question and you have a range of possible answers and you can do the dot product with a lot of your embedded answers, perhaps all of them, very quickly. And so you can rank the possible answers by how close together they are. Some of them might be one degree apart. I'm going to talk here about degrees rather than radians. Sorry, mathematicians. One of them, some of them might be 90 degrees apart, in which case they're not candidates as answers, and everything in between. And indeed, they could be 180 degrees apart, in which case the cosine would be minus one, and they would be as different as they could be. And so you've got these two vectors, and you're looking for those that point as close as possible to the same direction. And that gives you your answer. And so you then trot out your answer, or if you can't find anything that falls within a suitable tolerance of, of nil as the angle between them, you say you can't find an answer at all. And so this is the search-ask method using embedding. You search the information you've just been given. You compare that with a, an embedded question. And you look at the angle between as many of them as you can and that answer or that question. And then that will help you to determine an answer. All right. I hope that's approximately clear. Can you see how it also answers the question of how we can incorporate earlier conversations without requiring the whole model to be retrained, without doing fine tuning? We can incorporate earlier conversations by exactly the same method. Let me remind you what we've just done we took a series of articles about the Winter Olympics of 2022 or anything else 
that happened since the end of the training period, September 2021. We took those, we read them in, we chunked them up and we calculated their embeddings and then we compared them with a current conversation. Here we're just doing a simple question and answer, but you could do something much more sophisticated if you had an ongoing conversation related to this particular uh, set of data. So why can't we, well we can is the answer, why can't we, why shouldn't we take an earlier conversation that we've had, one that as far as we know, unless OpenAI have pinched it, so to speak, has not been incorporated into the training of the chatbot, but we can still use it by feeding it to the chatbot as new data and then asking it to reference it as part of its answer to or, our res or its resources to be called upon for a current conversation. So in a sense we've killed two birds with one stone. We've not only said that we don't need to retrain the model in the fine-tuned sense in a way that would fundamentally shift the weights that are embedded in its neural net, what we can do instead is really to use past conversations or other information as additional information and then use existing means of calculation, of embedding, of encoding, of tokenizing. We can do all of that in order to use the later information on the sort of piggyback of the earlier deep training of the machine learning that gave rise to the big neural net that is whichever GPT model we're using. And that's really very illuminating because it shows a different way of updating the model that doesn't have to wait for GPT or OpenAI, although as OpenAI very properly say, there are both cost terms in the, the sense that a GPT three and a half can only deal with about five pages and even GPT 432K can only deal with 40 pages and neither of them are cheap, although GPT three and a half is very cheap compared with GPT 432K, which I think is about 30 times more expensive. But if you needed to do it, it can be done. So you do it. And so we've learned something here about how to augment a model and how to teach even so powerful a thing as these GPT models information, knowledge, skills even, that arose after the time which marked the end of their official training process. I hope you found that interesting. Thank you for listening.